Hi guys, uh, Pastor Greg Corcoran here from Battlefield Baptist Church. Uh, pray that this sermon is a blessing, an encouragement, and a challenge to you in your walk with the Lord. Additionally, I just wanted to say that if we here at Battlefield can ever be a blessing to you, please don't hesitate to contact us. And the best way to do that is through our website at battlefieldbaptist.org. Again, I pray this sermon blesses you, encourages you, and uh, that you'll fall more in love with God, more in love with his word, and more in love with people. You see, they put me on a shot clock. <laughs> I have two minutes to get to the point, and then I have to turn over my time to the next pastor. It's actually much, much more sinister almost than that. I don't know, I struggle to really find the words. It's obviously a little bit faster than a second. Um, some of the, like the battlefield lifers know what it is. It's actually, it's set at 116 ticks per minute. Almost two per second. That's the, the current death rate in the world. It's estimated that only 2% of believers in America regularly share their faith with others. Actually, it's estimated that only 5% of believers have ever led anybody to Christ. In the Barnett Research Group, they, they did a survey in 2007 of Catholic and Protestant believers, and they were asking participants if they felt the responsibility um, to share their faith. 81% of Catholics said no. 53% of Protestants said no. In fact, Barna also found that 75% of American adults who professed to be born again could not even define the Great Commission. Man, so happy to have grown, grown up in a church where missions was such a huge, huge part of everything we did. Every minute, 116 people die. If you were to hash that out, that's 6,930 um, people every hour, every day, in fact. 166,132 people. Of the 8 billion people that are in the world, it's estimated that only 31% are Christians. That means that there's more than 5.5 billion people in the world who um, would be considered lost, who, who do not know Jesus Christ um, as their Savior. It's estimated that if you were line up the approximate number of lost um, people in the world and you were give each non-believer two feet of space, that, that line would reach around the equator 70 times. Now, I don't know about you guys, man, but when I hear stuff like that, it makes me uncomfortable. Alexander McLaren once said, like, you tell me the depth of a Christian's compassion, and I will um, tell you the measure of his usefulness. We ought to have a heart for the lost. Yeah. Our passage this morning is in Luke chapter 19. If you grew up in Sunday school, it's a very familiar passage of scripture. We'll start in verses 1 through 10. This is a story of Zacchaeus. 
Actually, while you're turning, this is the sixth mention of a tax collector thus far. Only two were mentioned by name. It's actually suggested that maybe Zacchaeus' name was mentioned because he was known later on in the church. Anyways, Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was chief among the publicans, and he was rich. Those two things should not have gone together. So he was most likely hated. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, but he could not for the press because he was of little stature. And for one reason or another, he wanted to see who Jesus was. As his fame grew, perhaps he had heard the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead just up the hill at Bethany. Perhaps he knew Levi. Seems probable because he was the chief of the tax collectors. Regardless, he wants to see Jesus, but he can't because the crowd was so big and he's so small. Verse 4 tells us that he ran before and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he's gone to be the guest of a man who, who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and he said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I, I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I, I restore him fourfold. Jesus said unto them, This day is salvation coming to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which was lost. This, this final statement, this, this final statement of Jesus that we find in verse 10 is the most important truth revealed in all of Scripture. As far as you and I are concerned, this is why we can be saved. Right? Because God is a seeker and saver of the lost. Right? This is part of the very nature of God, even ever since the fall of man in the garden that was recorded in Genesis 3, when the Lord came searching for Adam and Eve who were hiding from him, and he said, Where art thou? God continues to seek for lost sinners. It all began in the garden, and, and thanks be to God that he tarries his coming because he continues to seek for the lost. The Lord's not broken his promise to return for the church, his bride. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. That's what Peter said, but his long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, because, praise God, he is a seeker of the lost. In fact, Peter goes on to say in verse 15 that we should account that long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. It's not that the Lord's unwilling to return. It's not that he's unable to return, right? He's not tardy. He's not off schedule. Our God is sovereign. 
He delays the coming of Christ and the fiery judgment because he is long-suffering and he wants to give lost sinners an opportunity to be saved because he is a seeker of the lost. And Paul affirmed that truth. That's what Peter was mentioning when he wrote to Timothy, stating that it's God whose will or desires um, to have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel quoted God. He said, I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and I will bind up that which was broken and I will strengthen that which was sick. God is a seeker and a saver, savior to the lost, those who are lost and in danger. And this is critical, not only to our understanding of God's divine purpose, but it's foundational to all of scripture. All of the Old Testament points to it and all the New Testament helps define it. God seeks and saves the lost. And listen, we only need to be reminded from, from Paul in Romans 3.11 that no man seeks after God in order to be grateful that it's God who seeks after us. Jesus said that his primary purpose for coming to earth was to seek and save the lost. Right? He didn't come to be a good example or to teach great lessons or to even come to heal the sick or feed the hungry, but he came to seek and save the lost. He came rather to retrieve lost people. And that raises a very important question then. What does it mean, in fact, to be lost? The word study of the word lost is actually quite sobering. Right? In the original language, the root of the word means to destroy. In the passage that we just read about Zacchaeus, the word loss is used to describe someone who is missing out. Thus relaying the idea that those outside of the kingdom, like the wealthy and corrupt tax collector, are missing out on real life. In Luke 5.37, loss is used to describe something that's ruined. This verse is talking about an old or brittle wineskin that's ruined by this influx all of a sudden of new wine. In Luke 15, 4 through 6, law speaks of something that's disoriented, as it's used for a sheep that's in serious danger because of having wandered too far from its shepherd. In Luke 15, 17, loss is used for the son, wasting his life and his potential because he's not in fellowship with his father. In Luke 4, 34, the word is used for eternal destruction as loss describes the state of destruction that a demon wants to avoid at all costs. So when we put all the usages together, it paints actually a rather chilling picture of those who are spiritually lost. They are missing out on the life that God has for them, ruining what could be a beautiful life, wasting even their potential. They are disoriented and confused in darkness and face ultimate destruction. It's no wonder that Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. It's imperative even that we have a proper understanding of the condition of the lost sinner. Romans 3, Paul gives us a careful description of that condition. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, there's none righteous. Nope. Not one. There's none that understand. There's none that seek it after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they have used deceit. 
The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the condition of the lost. Right? And the Bible also paints a really sobering picture of the eternal destination of the lost. Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, 41, Then, then he um, say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed in the everlasting fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. He, he says five verses later in 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Scripture teaches too. There are only two eternal destinies, eternal life for those who've been born again through faith in Jesus or everlasting punishment for those who have rejected him. Listen to me, Matthew 25 doesn't state that the everlasting fire was prepared for people. In fact, there's no evidence in all of scripture that God predestines anybody to go to hell. Scripture, however, it, it does tell us that hell is prepared for for Satan and his demons, hell was not prepared for humanity. But scripture does teach that if a sinner continues to listen to Satan and follow his ways, they will end up where he ends up. And that is in the torments of hell. The gospel of Matthew. Hell is described as an everlasting fire. In Mark's gospel, it says it's an unquenchable fire. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul described this punishment of hell as an everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Peter's description uses the words chains of darkness. And Luke 16 is described as everlasting torment in which the rich man is just begging Abraham to have mercy on him and send the beggar Lazarus just to dip the tip of his finger in water in order to cool his tongue, for I am tormented in this flame, he says. John wrote in Revelation 14, 11, that the smoke of their torment was going to ascend up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night. He goes on to say in chapter 20, verse 10, that the devil and those that deceived him were cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever. He says four verses later that death and hell were then cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death, and whoever was not found written in the, the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Sin has devastated all of humanity. All are marred, corrupt, ruined. If you put it all together, headed for eternal damnation and an endless destruction, absent from the presence of the Lord and an everlasting and unquenchable fire bound in the chains of darkness for all of eternity. And listen, void of faith in Jesus Christ, we are all in that very same condition. Lost. Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone, there, there's not a person who's been born on this planet that didn't have a huge, gaping, God-shaped hole in their heart. All of us are alienated from God by our sin. All of us have a need for the gospel. Yet some are deceived. In the thinking that some people really don't need Jesus. Others are convinced that some people are too messed up to be Candidates for Christianity. 
No one's too lost to be a candidate for Jesus' love. Right? Jesus had a heart for lost people. And if, if we're to be his followers, we need to have a heart for the lost. Right? That's what, that was the heart, the, the very core of Paul's message to the Philippians even. When he wrote in chapter 2, verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also unto the things of others. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself um, the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of men, and being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even unto the cross. Why? Because he had a heart for the lost. Right? And Paul says that we ought to have that same mindset, or let this mind be in you. Let his heart be yours. Charles Spurgeon once stated, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. You can be sure of that. Jesus had a heart for lost people, and so should his followers. In Luke 15, we see an exchange between um, Jesus and the Pharisees, and we see that they're once again upset because Jesus has associated with sinners. And in this passage, we can clearly see Jesus' heart towards the lost. Luke 15, verse 1, then drew near unto him all the publicans, or tax collectors, and sinners, for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying that this man receiveth sinners and even eats with them. So what's, the, what's the problem? I mean, the core of the problem here, the, the controversy is essentially this. People, all people, even sinners were important to Jesus. People didn't really matter to the Pharisees. Rules mattered. Traditions mattered. How they appeared to other people mattered. But lost people didn't matter. To them, the lost were not important, especially the tax collectors, especially the sinners. If we're honest, it's very easy for us to end up or become like the Pharisees in our evaluations of other people. Lest we get our halo on too tight, we end up with this unpublished list of people that we don't really think are important. And the criteria of the list may range from anything from personality, looks, income, race, gender, social status, education, age, marital status, political preference, and even religion. God carries no such list. Jesus acts, actively loves all people, but he especially loves lost people. His response to the Pharisees in Luke 15, after they murmured that he was with the sinners, eating with them was to tell two stories which served to teach that lost people merit an all-out search. Verse 3, and he spoke this parable unto them, saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses just one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which was lost until he finds it. And when he hath found it, he, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over the ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance." 
Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose just one, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I've found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, um, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. You have never locked eyes with another human being who is not valuable to God. Paul said in Romans 5, 8, that God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Some of us need to realize that lost people are not the enemy. Rather, they are victims of the enemy. And we have been called to set them free. Thus, retrieving lost people is of the highest priority. God views lost people as being of such great value that they deserve this all-out effort, this all-out search. Jesus is saying if a sheep is worth pursuing, how much more is a human soul worth seeking? Thus, Jesus thought that not only was following God about doing what God wants, but it's about valuing what God values. Notice the importance that Jesus places on one lost sheep. It was so important to the shepherd that he's willing to leave the other 99 behind in order to retrieve just one that was lost, right? And this should speak volumes to us. So often we spend all of our time and all of our energy and all of our efforts with the 99 who are found that we neglect the one who's actually lost, Right, and notice the ratio. The one, it, it takes precedence over the 99 who are found. In the U.S., the ratio is more like 30 to 70. Right, 30 found to 70 lost. So if one commander search that left behind 99, how much more should 30 or should the 70? We'll have an eternity to rest and to hang out with each other with those who are found. We ought to be consumed with going after the lost. But retrieving lost people requires a costly initiative. It would be insightful or super obvious to keep in mind that chapter 15 comes after chapter 14, lest you couldn't count. My encouragement would be to consider Luke 15 in the light of chapter 14. Right before Jesus launched into this discussion about lost people, he says this in chapter 14, verse 26. He said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me can not be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and count the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold begin to mock him, saying that this man he began to build and he wasn't able to finish. For what king going out to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consult whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. 
or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desire conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt is lost, it's savor. Wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill. But men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is explaining the cost of discipleship. Right, and the whole point that he's making is that to reach lost people, we're going to have to put our relationship with God above every human relationship, even above ourselves. Immediately following the story um, of Jesus seeking out the lost sinner, Zacchaeus, in chapter 19, he enters into a parable. And really, I just would like to let that kind of draw our time to a close. And I just really like the way the CSB says it. Luke 19, verse 11. It says, as they were listening to this, he, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Therefore, he said, a, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called 10 of his servants and he, he gave them 10 minas and he told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and they sent a delegation after him saying that we don't want this man to have rule over us. But at his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants and he, he'd given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. We are living in a period between chapter 14 and chapter 15. Right? The, the master is absent, but he will return according to his promise. We've been given a task to perform, and we must be found faithful until he returns. What will the king say when he returns? Will his words mean reward? Or rebuke. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, in this regard, it's required that managers or stewards be found faithful. If you're lost this morning, can I just tell you that God loves you? Right? Like, forget everything you ever heard. God loves you. Right? He wants a relationship with you. God doesn't desire to condemn you. He wants to save you. But apart from faith in Jesus Christ, our, our sin has made that relationship impossible. I believe that you've heard enough here this morning concerning the condition not only of your lostness, but the potential of your eternal destiny, that you can make a fair and rational decision concerning your eternity. God proved his love for you. And that while we were sinners, Christ came and he died for us. Not, not to condemn us, but to seek and to save us. God loves you so much that he came to this earth in the form of his only son, Jesus. He paid for our sin 
with his death on the cross. John records it this way, that God loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him won't perish, but they can have everlasting life. The Bible tells us, call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. And if you haven't been saved, if you're still lost, we're going to enter into this, this time where we're just reflecting on God's word. We're not going to prolong it. I'm not going to take some big emotional plea. But if you're lost, call upon the name of the Lord and you can be saved. Don't worry about the, saying the right words. If you come to him with a sincere and repentant heart, the Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive. If you're here, you have no idea where to start. Travis, I've never, ever even prayed once in my life. Man, burn up the carpet, come down. I'll pray with you. I'll pray with you. But if you just stand to your feet, just for a moment, we are gonna reflect on God's word. It won't be um, long. I'll pray and then we'll enter a time of reflection. God, thank you so much for this opportunity we've had to come and to be in your house, to worship you together. Father, thank you for coming and seeking and trying to save the lost. Father, I pray that if there's one here that's lost this morning, that you give them the courage to abandon themselves and to seek you. God, be with us now over this next moment where we're reflecting on the word. Pray these things in Jesus' name.